Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in Excalibur number 107, Focus, we're welcoming aboard new regular penciler Salvador LaRocca, who is giving us a lot of lines and some very ambitious layouts, which we will do our best to untangle or unbraid or unweave or whichever formal term from whichever form of comics formalism you prefer. Excalibur number 107 was originally published in March 1997, and the creative team is Ben Rab on writing, Salvador Loroca on inks, Scott Koblish on inks, Kevin Tinsley in graphic color works on colors, Richard Starkings in Comicraft, and Kiff Scholl on letters, and Matt Idelson and Paul Tetrone on editing. The thing to notice about this piece, the thing that makes it very, very special, is its realistic depiction of its figures. When the characters reached the magazine, they were exaggerated, as always happens. This is vintage. Welcome back to the Robisance. We've got our full complement of hosts back this week. That's right. We talked Andrew into returning by offering him a huge raise, which he accepted, yeah. forgetting that 10 times zero is still zero. <laughs> oh. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. As I'm sure you know by now, my deal is sexy, gendery stuff in comics and other generic whatnots and academic spots and public scholarship ones like over at Sequential Scholars, where Andrew and I are talking about something at the time of this recording. We're not sure yet. We might be wrapping up Mojo Mayhem, podcast time travel, etc. But we'll be doing something great, I'm sure. It's my turn to pick the topic and I'll figure it out. But rest assured, it's going to be awesome. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. And in that capacity, I'm happy for him that he gets to spend so much time upside down in this issue but sad that the basis collection of tits out jumpsuits only come in Piotr Rasputin size. I am joined as always by Mav. What new projects are you pursuing this week? I've been cleaning my house. Um, I've been like reorganizing bookshelves if I have some time and can get out to Ikea. I think I might buy an, a new entertainment center and some new shelves to reorganize both my living nice. room and my podcast recording studio. I don't know if that's going to happen. That's like that's sort of that's the stretch goal for the week. But that's mostly my life these days. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying. I'm enjoying this vacation. That's um that's where I'm at. Um, I'm also talking about Sucker Punch a lot. If you if you watch mm. listen to my other show, mm-hmm. I, I, it's been interesting week in podcast land for me so that's that's what i'm up to (laughs) and i'm trying to remember when today is because i realized earlier today in fact that i'd been reading last week on the calendar all week this week so i had no idea that we were recording a podcast today until (laughs) you know two hours beforehand i'm just like oh wait what what are people talking about oh it's not the day i thought it was it's a troubles of being an academic is is the calendar (laughs) doesn't really work in the summer like i don't have without a schedule i have no ability to tell when i am so so that's, that's you. a problem you're here that's what matters we're yep, all here I made it. <laughs> andrew are you hanging in there this week uh like all scholars i am hanging by a thread and living deadline to deadline mm. but i'm back and i got to see a bear and <gasps> two deer Ooh. and an absurd <laughs> amount of pine trees so <laughs> I'm happy to be talking to you. Is there more to this bear story? Was the bear just sighted at a long distance through a window? Or are you fighting off a bear like in a story that you've alluded to in the past (laughs) and haven't fully elaborated? 
that's true. I, I do have a bear story. Um, no, this one was just uh, off the side of the highway, chilling out, hanging around. It was good. Nice. My Doing kids were stuff. super excited. Hell yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're back. I'm glad you had a good trip. Um, and we are so fortunate to be joined by a really wonderful first-time guest this week who knows lots about comics and X-Men and how they both work. The pod is delighted to welcome Chris Gavaller. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. So thrilled to have you. We'll give you a little bit of a bio to introduce you, and then we'll get into your comics origin story. So Chris Cavaller is an associate professor of English at Washington and Lee University, comics editor of Shenandoah Magazine, and series editor of Bloomsbury Comics Studies. He has published six books of comics and comics-related scholarship, including On the Origin of Superheroes and his most recent book, The Comics Form, published in 2022. His current book project is tentatively titled The Color of Paper, Representing Race in the Comics Media. He blogs mostly about Comics Weekly at the patron saint of superheroes, and we'll certainly have a link to that in our show notes. So Chris, I definitely want to talk Comics Forum with you today. We've got lots to talk about in that regard with Salvador La Roca's art, and we will get to mm-hmm. it. But first, of course, we have to start with getting to know you a little bit better. So hit us with your comics origin story, Chris. Have you been a lifelong reader of comics? I started reading comics uh, when I was just a kid, probably around, God, I'm old, uh, 1975. <laughs> um ish let's let's yeah that's that wow does that date me um <laughs> honestly i actually really kind of learned how to read from comics at a, um, at a learning disability and didn't like to read regular books and so uh comic books were perfect for me and i i stopped i don't know late 70s and picked up picked them up again comics in um, high school read through college it was so much fun reading watchmen back when it was considered a maxi series coming out every month before it was considered a graphic novel but then i stopped around 1990 uh and then did didn't get back into it until my daughter she must have seen Superman or Batman like on TV or something like that and she asked dad who is that and then I totally got back into comics as a result of that and then um yeah I know it's really cute in fact she was born March 1997 so she's cover dated the same as the issue that we're going to talk about today wow Well, tell me a little bit about the history of your academic practice having to do with comics. I mean, obviously, you've done a ton of academic work about on comics at this point. Like, what kind of started? What started that part of your comics journey? That was from teaching. I was um I was an adjunct teacher at the time, and there was a group of students um looking for it was an honors group, and they wanted a course on superheroes. And my wife, who was my department chair at the time, sent them my way, and I was like, a class on superheroes that sounds delightful. Uh, so I, of course I said yes, and then that started me researching. And I thought it'd be a really simple little bit of a research project, but it um, sent me, God, into a decade of um, historical <laughs> focused sort of cultural archaeology, um, trying to figure out all the um, origin points of the uh, of the genre. And it's just kept me uh, moving since. And now basically all I do academically, well, I teach a variety of things, but as far as uh, what I publish, it's entirely focused on superheroes and, and the comics form. Let me ask you to like delve into that a little bit deeper, because yeah. I always love hearing about kind of what people are most interested in exploring with regards to comics and their academic practice like what is dynamic for you about this medium like what is kind of the central thing that draws you to to wanting to analyze how these things work initially i was just fascinated by the cultural phenomenon the fact that Mm. um every decade it seemed there were there was a different driving force behind the superhero genre and i I realized that like it, it looks like the genre starts with superman in 1938 but it actually begins really decades before that. So I was first it was again, I call it cultural archaeology, trying to dig up the sort of the forgotten past, the roots of where all these sort of character types are coming from. So I've spent I did that for several years. First couple books were focused on that. My more recent scholarship has moved towards formalist analysis, um, mm-hmm. philosophy of comics, which sounds ridiculous. Actually, uh, next week in Columbus, Ohio, I'll be at a um, conference called Philosophy of Comics. <laughs> um, so, and that's, philosophers are a lot of fun. They get into <laughs> the absolute minutiae. I love it. Um, yeah. So it's no no broad strokes. It's like, it's about pulling apart every little atom and trying to figure out precisely how the thing works. And that's just Apparently, that's something I really like. So I've, um, I still love the historical focus, but I've moved on to formalist analysis. 
let's talk a little bit about X-Men. We were trying to decide on, when we were talking just before the pod, how long ago we were both on a Vox podcast episode yeah. talking about an X-Men teaching syllabus, which Andrew was also supposed to be on that pod and had tech difficulties and didn't join <laughs> I remember. us. remember, yes. Right. But this was like maybe five years ago, which is terrifying. At least five. Oh it my might God. Be more. I oh know. My God. I don't think, I, I'm, I'm going to check because I don't even know how long I've been doing that show. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> anyway, anyway, let's uh, let's talk about X Men a little bit. It's obviously a franchise that you have a ton of affection for. I had that I long do, ago conversation for yeah. you. So, I mean, what draws X Men? What interests you about it? I remember I I bought off of a Seven Eleven. Remember the old spinning um, comic book stands? Oh yeah. Um, maybe you don't. <laughs> I'm I old, do. like I, I said. Do. Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, I remember I bought the second issue of X-Men when it was, you know, um, not rebooted, but uh, reconfigured in like 75, 76. It would have been worth a lot of money, but I was a little kid and I probably chewed on it and it's like ripped to pieces and I can't find it anymore. But I was um, I was following Claremont um, X-Men from um, yeah. very early on. And then I I have a, a real soft spot for the Neil Adams artwork from the late 60s. And that was then in um, reprints for um, five years before Claremont came in. So I love the Neil Adams stuff. I love the um, the moment when Claremont came in. Actually, I remember opening up the comic, and it starts with the entire new team literally in free fall. They're yep. just, yeah, something exploded in the previous issue. I never saw the previous issue. And I don't know who any of these characters are, and they have to figure out how to get everyone to the ground safely. Oh, So it, it's, so it introduces okay, all of your powers, and it's like there's, there's this weird blue guy who says, I can't teleport more than one person at a time. I'm like, cool. And someone else is, and someone else is like, I don't have enough lift to carry more than one person at a time. And it's like, I'm learning all these characters literally as they're falling through the sky. It was the perfect introduction. Um, then when I, um, oh gosh, I, I think X-Men were the only comic super yeah the only comic that i followed monthly through college everything else i lost interest in but i, I stuck with the x-men i think just because claremont's um, writing was just so interesting no one else was even in the 80s no one else was re really doing what he was doing have you sort of kept up with the franchise over the years or is it sort of like a sort of a nostalgic interest or do you like the current stuff at all i have to admit that i have not around 1990 i dropped out of comics i missed the whole 90s and, yeah yeah the 90s when i went back and looked at the 90s it was like oh my god what happened yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was a hell of a decade to miss i look back and it's like wow did things change and so uh now i haven't i haven't i mean i still have a real fondness for these characters um but i have not been um i only peripherally like you know literally like on the internet see headlines and articles but i haven't i haven't been reading an x-men issue in a long long time. that is totally fine we're going back to the 90s today as i know you yeah know, so it was may 2020 when we did the oh, X-Men okay. syllabus episode of... Oh, uh, that wasn't about, quite as long ago as No, it was right at the beginning okay. of, the, of the pandemic, though, oh, so time was right, still right. glacially slow. <laughs> <laughs> I feel slightly better. Three years is I better. I do, I do. That's it. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Okay. Thank you. We'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. People can go back to that conversation if they want, see what we recommended teaching in a class on X-Men. Okay. Well, I really want to get to your impressions of this, uh, I was going to say fabulous, but fabulous in quotes, um, comic from the 1990s. So we will do our issue summary and get into it. And we're going to ask you to talk about comics form plenty today because I'm eager to talk about LaRocca's art, polarizing artist, as we talked about with Adam last week but we'll see what our mileage is on him. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely never drive your new plane slash car transformer entirely too fast on a busy road, stoking the resentment of the normies forced to marvel at our awesomeness. Just kidding, we probably totally would. Just to prove how extremely cool we are, here's a plot summary. Excalibur number 107 opens with Brian and Megan flying a transformer to London for a very special day. The mood is quickly undercut by the revelation that despite their recent heroism saving London and whatnot, they're blamed for the loss of what some Londoners call the real heroes in the United States. Plus the fact that before they saved London, they let like half a million Londoners die. People just somehow can't get over that. Anyway, Brian and Megan, not known for being especially in touch with the common man, nonetheless try to make the most of their day, reaffirming their love for one another and enjoying lunch on the patio. Yet it quickly becomes clear the jeers have gotten to Brian after all. After a broody silence, he reveals to Megan something longtime readers might recall him revealing at least twice before. He doesn't want to be a superhero anymore. He wants to be nothing more than a simple scientist. From there, 
there, we proceed to wedding ring shopping, but even if Brian wants to leave the superhero game behind, it's not ready to leave him behind. Megan senses a disturbance and is promptly propelled out of the jewelry store into the street, knocked unconscious, at which point none other than Spiral makes her presence known. Blaming Spiral for Megan's injuries, Brian attacks her. Spiral, however, reveals that she has the mark of the Crimson Dawn, and it's actually the dragons of the Crimson Dawn who are behind it all. Also, they're not after Megan, they're after Brian. Meanwhile, on Muir Island, Kurt, Colossus, Rain, and Kitty work on a new Cerebro unit that will, in theory, allow them to search out mutants in need. This prompts reflections on what led our heroes to join the X-Men under the tutelage of Professor Charles Xavier. Elsewhere, Douglock tries to get Moira McTaggart to take a break from her legacy virus research, but after receiving an email from Alistair Stewart, who informs Moira that he's taking Rory Campbell to Japan for a prosthesis fitting, Moira is newly determined to find a cure for the deadly virus. So, Chris, in some ways, (laughs) this is... I I hope you enjoyed that summary. It's always a challenge. That was delightful. (laughs) And I'm going to point something out, which I find really interesting. Please. You left out four pages. Did I? Four pages. Yeah, because, no, and this is narratively fascinating. You each... um, Four of the characters each have one page recap of their origin story, which is bizarrely superfluous. I was reading it like, I mean, I was delighted by it because I love these old characters that took me back to my childhood. But it's like, really? No one knows this stuff? I I have thoughts. (laughs) We're going to talk about that. We can start talking about that for your first impressions if you want, because I was going to say, like, it's a weird issue to jump in on in some ways. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it's not because this is kind of the start of a new era with a new writer. Well, we had Rob last issue, He's but this is the, the second last... issue. Yeah. And um, but this is the first issue with Salvador LaRocca, who's gonna pencil it for a little while anyway, give us some consistency. So we're doing a little bit of recapping here and setting up what versions yeah. of the characters these folks want to deal this, with. So yeah, hit me with your first impressions, Chris. It well, feels like you already started. So <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, 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 please go ahead. Okay. So I was delighted by the the um by the recaps, but also confused narratively because they couldn't possibly be needed. Um, even if you were a new reader, there was just no need to know these four specific one-page backstories. It just it just wasn't necessary, which means that it was done for some other reason than narrative. Mm. So there was... And it's interesting that uh, there's so many things to talk about. The layout gets really bizarre for these flashback scenes as well. And each one is a little monologue. So you get four one-page monologues from four different characters. And I didn't get the sense that the character that they're talking to in the story world was new to this. So it was like, they're like telling him stuff that he seems to know. So it was even stranger. I mean, wasn't it Kitty's fiance that they're talking to? Yes, yes, it is. (laughs) So it's like, I think he knows some of this stuff, right? Well, okay. She's talking, is that a fiance she's talking to her boyfriend and her ex-boyfriend they know the story yeah yeah it is an odd thing to be expositing yes okay (laughs) i mean i do that all the time right (laughs) don't we all a totally natural way of talking and i mean yeah i mean i assume you have thoughts too about the aestheticization of those panels you know the use of the x-men logo and how they're very like yeah yeah. that was um yeah to go immediately into the weeds one of the interesting things about um LaRocca and the uh, the colorist too the background of the page literally the color of the page is rarely seen usually there's a background color and then the panels are um, seemingly placed on top of it obviously that's mm-hmm. not literally what's happening and for those pages the background you know what's visible in the gutters it's as though the background is a sheet of x-men x symbols with panels placed on top of them. And it's only, and so it's clearly LaRocca came up with that system as a flashback system for these four pages. And it's interesting because elsewhere, his um, layouts are really pleasantly chaotic. And here they're unbelievably clean. They're just all rectangulars, panels in one circular panel, which frames the character who's talking in the present. So present tense, present situation is a circular panel. Flashbacks are all rectangles. There are no other pages like that in the whole um, issue. It's They really stand out. I mean, if you had to talk a little bit about the significance of those choices, I mean, why do you think it's done like this? Like, to me, it signals something like we're doing this non-diegetic thing that we're mm. sort of branding the characters with, like, who they're supposed to be at this moment in time. Well, integrating it with, like, past canon. But, I mean, that's just yeah, my, like, yeah. kind of knee-jerk. I mean, what's your take on it? The background is odd. I don't know what to make of that. Or I do. It's sort of like it, it, it's the flashback system. But the really 
rectangular panels and circular panels evokes an earlier time period. Mm. So I think, I mean, that's what Kirby was doing in the 1960s. Um, if you look at any, almost any Marvel, Ditko 2, um, any Marvel from the 60s, the house layout style is very rectangular. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the scenes that they're evoking are from the 70s, so it doesn't match at all. But I think the um, I think the panel style has the connotation of a long time ago, yeah. right? Um, so even though accurately, I mean, it's interesting because, um, oh yeah, I mentioned Neil Adams before. So he did, he took over the X-Men like in the late, I'd say like 1968. And he and Stranko, who was doing S.H.I.E.L.D. and Captain America at the same time, they really redefined layout norms for Marvel and then spilled over into DC. So, you know, Kirby in the 60s got very regularized just because he was doing so many comics. He just mm-hmm. had to like put them out as, as fast as possible because his earlier stuff, his layouts were crazy in the 30s, 40s, 50s. But um, in the yeah, 60s, and his much later stuff too. Once he's not doing every book at Marvel, he gets yep. a lot more experimental. Exactly, right. And so the new artists would come in and they would literally trace him. They would just imitate his style. But Adams and Stranko shook things up. And, you know, Adams was the first one to really start doing diagonal diagonal, lots of diagonal panels, and just really the idea of not having a base norm for your page, but the norm became every page is a different style. Every page is completely irregular and unlike the page before it. So there was no like baseline style for layout. So that was the norm starting in 1968. So it's interesting to evoke the past, you actually have to go pre-Neil Adams from, you know, X-Men of that time period. So there's sort of a yeah, there's sort of a rewriting of, of history there, but in a, in a pleasant way. I, I found it kind of fun to see them do that. Yeah, I like the circular panels too, like as an injection of the present, like sort of layered on top of the past, sort yeah, of asserting right, the privacy right. of the present almost. It's interesting. Yeah, those circular ones feel like very 1950s to me. Those mm. really have a golden age uh, effect. Yeah, that's funny too. Um, other first impressions you want to share before we before we dig into some, well, I'll pick up first impressions from Andrew Mab as well, but any other first impressions you want to share right now, Chris? I was braced, like I said, I missed the 90s. So when I first time I opened up a 90s superhero comic, I was like, oh, what man. the hell happened? <laughs> so, I was, so I was braced for it to be like insane. And it's like, it's fairly calm, the rendering style um, okay. compared to say like Rob Leafield or Mike Diodato or something like that. So mm-hmm. I was, at first I thought, I thought, oh, this is, this can't be late 70s, this uh, late 90s, this must be early 90s. And then I looked at the date again. It's like, oh, wow, no. So Loranco seems a lot calmer as far as the, um, I'm going to say, absurd visual styles of, of, of drawing bodies. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I'd say like he strikes me as more sedate in that respect, but mm-hmm. it was just sort of like the layouts and stuff here that really yes. communicated sort of a level of excess to me. But um, I want yeah. to talk about yeah. that more. Let me pick up some first impressions from Andrew and Mav. And as I said, we'll get into it more. Andrew, how are you feeling about this issue? It's your first time talking about the Robisons with us. So Robisons. so hit me with the first impressions. <laughs> Um, on the Robisons, I mean, we'll talk about when we get to style and all that kind of stuff. This guy really hates Pete Wisdom, and I am not one to defend <laughs> Pete Wisdom. Do you know what I mean? So I feel yeah. really weird going to that extreme. But the thing I wanted to get out of the way early was my obligatory Megan rant. There's a scene in this issue where the exchange summarized is Brian saying, I'm sorry, I suck at everything, Megan. And Megan saying, it's okay that you suck at everything. I love you no matter what. And him saying, yes, I know. That's why I love you. Yep. (laughs) Fuck off. This is getting worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I would say the writing of all of the relationships gets infinitely worse in the Rob era, which is one of the things that's odd about it. Uh, His idea of what constitutes a relationship of any type seems odd to me. But anyway, yeah, yeah, agreed on all fronts. Mav, how are you feeling about it? (sighs) It's a book. Um, <laughs> this, this is the second issue in a row where nothing really happens and i don't mm. want to entirely blame ben rob for that mm. because this book more than anything that we we've been talking about this sort of subtly for the last i don't know 15 issues or so this issue the band-aids off this issue starts with hey we are not doing excalibur anymore this is the third tier x-men stream uh, team and you know how you know because like literally the book opens up with stanley presents a turning point in the lives of the european x-men they don't even get to be excalibur on their own damn splash page Hmm. they are i mean it does say later later excalibur but they are branded as the european x team 
um, X-Men team. Within the context of the book, Peter is wearing X-Men loungewear. This is a thing that um, <laughs> that will happen later uh, in in later issues as well. Like their clothes are, you know, and I'm I'm okay with people having you know branded stuff for their group. We we have T-shirts for our show, right? Like that's a thing that people do. But we're not wearing T-shirts for someone else's show. We're wearing T-shirts for our show, and that's and this is what this book has done. This book has said, no, they're X Men first, and the reason mm. this happens is because we want to really associate with the reader no 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 don't be scared you are reading another x book we promise and i think <laughs> that's why all the so i called it the wrapping paper background but like the flashback mm -hmm. background yeah, that yeah. um that chris was talking about nice that wrapping paper does a couple things it, there's color schemes to sort of give identity to each character and i like that but the concept of doing it is just yes 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 we promise this is an x-men book and the part where it really really grabs me to the detriment of the story is the plot such that it is of this issue is chiefly that Brian doesn't want to be a superhero anymore. I mean, that's not new. He said that originally like 20 issues ago, but sure. <laughs> Brian doesn't want to be a superhero anymore. Brian wants to just be a scientist and yet he built a flying car a that transformer. has <laughs> a transforming car. Okay, that's cool. I understand, why, I understand why a Marvel scientist would want to do that, but why is Brian X-Men branding his flying car right. the speedometer has an x-men logo on it the um the license plate has an x-men logo on it brian has never been been an x-man this is literally mm. just embracing that you know he's the only character on this team who's not a mutant and he's not an x-man and he's just like hey but i'm gonna be <laughs> you know because like it's literally just sort of a no we are the european x-men and i find that tiring and i don't want to blame rob for that and i don't want to blame laroca for that that's editorial because i actually like laroca i don't think this is his best work this is early in this is early on in his professional career at marvel like i think he starts around 95 but he's just bumming around this is like his first regular gig i think and i think he has a unique style that i think chris is responding to which is he's not just the 90s guy there's certainly an influence of the 90s image excess style in there but he's trying to do his own thing i think he makes some interesting choices within this book itself which we'll talk about when we get to them but on the other hand it also screams but we want this to fit in on the shelf when we stick it next to an issue of x-force right. that's that's how this feels so if I, if I can respond to something you said, Mav, you talked about branding and you talked about editorial choices. Uh, and we, we, uh, you and I Facebook messaged about this a little bit. This to me is such a fascinating moment in Marvel history. Marvel, the company, Marvel Entertainment is literally bankrupt. They have filed yes. for Chapter 11. They have farmed out the Avengers. Yes. Um, Thor, uh, Captain America, Iron Man, I, there are two other titles, Fantastic Four. They farmed them out, not just to anyone, but to They're the artists. competition. Who, yeah, to their competition, to the, to, the, to the artists who left in 92 to make Image Comics, which is a fascinating, fascinating moment in Marvel history because people, you know, they're such a juggernaut now. They just own Hollywood. The idea that they were literally bankrupt. And at this moment, it was unclear whether they were going to survive. They were not. <laughs> they were not going to survive. This is, um, <laughs> we, we, we've, we've, we've alluded to this. I don't know how much we've talked about on the show. They're literally bankrupt. And I don't think people understand because what that it's means. Hard to, well, I think people understand what bankruptcy is. But when I say that Marvel is literally bankrupt, I got into an argument at one point with somebody where I was, where, where I said, where somebody was arguing, well, they should have never farmed out their licenses to their, <laughs> their um, somebody said they should never farm out their licenses to their characters to all these movie studios. And I said, they're trying to avoid becoming homeless. And somebody got <laughs> mad at me for like, for making, it's like, well, you shouldn't make fun of homeless people. I was like, I'm not. Oh my Marvel Comics <laughs> in the 1990s, Marvel Comics, and this is not a joke, was selling the furniture in front of the building. They were selling <laughs> office supplies and furniture in front of the building in order to make in order to make rent there were stories about literal artists and writers who were working for marvel who were also on the streets people living in their cars and wow. you know because wow. they they were broke and when i say like it's it, it's hard to really understand that when yeah. you're 
talking about a company that, you know, right now we're talking about the downswing of Marvel and, and, co- and comic fatigue, superhero fatigue, because the movies are only making 300 and 400 million dollars. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, these are people who were selling their furniture in front of the oh, building man. and that's not in order to in order to pay rent yeah it's yeah it was bad so, oh man so and they, they don't emerge from bankruptcy for another year or two so it's a drawn out horrible process you said you know it's an editorial um decision absolutely not has nothing to do with the writer or the artist and talking about branding I assume what's going on is either we cancel Excalibur or we were branded as clearly an X-Men series because Probably. that's, they only kept, If I, help me out with this. They formed out almost everything, canceled gobs, kept the X-Men, and I think they kept Spider-Man, Spider-Man and that was mm-hmm. it, right? Uh, of the main, there's other stuff that's around. It's basically, I mean, no one knows, but yeah. basing on the, on stories from like Marvel, the untold story uh, and things that random creators have said in the years since then and just looking at the sales figures they basically kept things that were selling well enough to support you know support themselves or were product lines where they felt like they could so there's a lot of stuff that they're sort of launching things and they'll and and a book might last for four or five issues as they're trying something um some stuff just survives way longer than you'd think it would just because it had a steady though not growing just the steady sales rate i've joked about this before i'm the only person in america reading nomad but it's still being published (laughs) (laughs) i mean and i wasn't like but nomad sticks around for the entire 90s and 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 it's like a weird book that like had a dedicated fan base i've met other people who are like who were super into the concept of nomad she hawks around the hawk book is around hawk actually exists at this he's the only character who exists in both the Marvel universe and he's also in the liefeld levers the heroes right 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 right. Mm -hmm. all right so i think you just nailed it so excalibur must have been on the very edge of the cutting block yes, right I and it's like either we're gonna they're gonna let this series go or they're gonna make sure that it's an x-men series <laughs> um which explains so i'm sure that you know the, the creative team was told very clearly put an x everywhere yeah right? <laughs> so yeah i think you i think you hit it i think that's exactly what's going on well and it's interesting the way the plot jives with that as well right we're building a cerebro unit so that we can bring more mutants into our right. franchise and be more connected yes. to <laughs> i mean that's interesting too right absolutely um, let me since we've got you here chris and i was enjoying your most recent book in the last couple of weeks leading up to this so i really want to nail you down on some comics form questions and okay. the first thing that i thought that we talk about was like this wonderful splash page like near the start of the issue where we're introduced to the lab and we've got it's sort of a splash page it's actually divided by one gutter but it's a it's a double page spread where we've got you know colossus holding up the machine kurt hanging upside down kitty flying in i really like this splash page i don't know whether it is narratively communicative or not but i enjoy (laughs) the dynamism of it a lot but in the interest of going going back to our comics educator roots a little bit let's talk about the function of splash pages you know if you were explaining how a splash page typically works in a superhero comic chris what would you say about it well okay splash page is a contested term because it has got at least two different definitions one is simply a one panel page so an image that you know more or less bleeds to the edges of one page there's no juxtaposed images another definition of um splash page is the um credits page because credits pages tend to be one panel images so like the credit page i tend to use it that way but it doesn't matter it's just like you can use the term however you like according to as long as you just define what you mean when i looked at this in my mind the splash page was the um first page the zoom um which is interesting because the two page spread they both have the upside down motif yeah and i'm looking at the the credits page let's call it and it's um it's oh it's so hard to decode okay at the top of the page there's some gray stuff that i couldn't for the life of me figure out what the (laughs) hell I was looking at and then I literally took my laptop turned it upside down and was like Oh, it's a castle, which means that LaRocca drew it right side up and then flipped it. Mm-hmm. And that's why it it's very difficult to decode because he wasn't actually drawing it to be seen upside down. So do you get what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of why, frankly, the, splash, the uh, credits page doesn't work. I quite like the two-page spread. 
And here is the strangest thing about it. Usually if you bother doing a two-page spread, you're linking the two pages so it's one large image. And what's funny about this is the gutter is just a little bit to the left of the, um, I mean, the, the pretend gutter, the drawn gutter mm-hmm. is just a little bit to the left of the literal gutter, meaning the, um, the margin wedge of the, of the two-page connection, which is a really odd thing to do because it's just not necessary. So, um, and I think you said earlier, you used the word excess. That definitely describes the 90s. Yeah. It's fun to see, to see that applied to layout because it's like, there's just no reason to do it this way. And that's one of the reasons I like it. It's like, it would have been so easy just to have the drawn gutter and the literal middle gutter coordinate just to, you know, to, to, to superimpose on each other. So he just moved the pretend gutter to the left and created and then cut Kurt, not in half. He just sort of chops off his uh, a leg and an arm. The effect, I, I think it's, yeah, it's very hard to visually decode. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of 90s um, comic art, actually. But I also found it just a lot of fun. Um, so it, it's playful. He's um, Lorok is sort of exploring some possibilities, you know, and, and it's it's building on, like I already talked about Neil Adams, but um, it's building on the tradition that Neil Adams started in the X-Men, which is shake it up, do something strange. I, I think Neil Adams was actually the first Marvel comic artist, at least, to do two-page spreads. So I was delighted to see Laroca continue that specifically X-Men tradition. Ooh, that's a wonderful callback to like thinking about, you know, we've got nothing left to lose, so let's get crazy. Anyway, Andrew, you were gonna you were gonna jump in. Just just maybe to speak to that. I kind of like the coffee sequence, the cafe sequence. Oh yeah. That's clever. Uh, and I thought that worked well and that showed a sense of pacing and um, rhythm that I don't normally associate with LaRocca, who I always think of as, as bombast and like drawing posters all the time. That to me was kind of cool. I like that. Well yeah, like let's let's relate those two things to each other because um i want to come back to that andrew just because like let's say a couple more things about this splash because i'd love to i'd love to hear mav's thoughts about it as well but i don't know i was just kind of looking at it and thinking about this so again i'm using the word splash which you know it's a a two-page spread technically (laughs) um it's a two-page spread that's sort of communicating not a dramatic moment so much as you know giving us a sense of these characters in their context in their space in the imaginative creation creative space of the laboratory and I was really interested in kind of the way he was communicating the way these bodies function in this space sort of the integration of bodies and machines sort of communicates the technological context in which these characters exist and of course like mutant bodies are their own kind of technology I was very interested in the way he's specifically communicating the way that the characters exceed these grids you know he's got both Colossus and Kitty exceeding the borders of the panel on the left hand side and then he's got two inset panels as well you know the amount of things layered on top of things both within the individual panels and then with other panels layered on top of other panels and characters exceeding frames and yep, again yep. the tangle of bodies and machines it's just it's a very dynamic way to communicate the sort of wonder and disorientation of this space like if i was going to make an argument on its behalf i would absolutely agree that it's very hard to decode but that's sort of why it works because it makes you study it it makes you think about the relationship between bodies and objects and in theory get invested in the wonder of this space and maybe that's going to work for some people maybe it's not going to work for other people i have adam in my head like being like that he hates Larocca's art <laughs> we're gonna have to have a debate about it but yeah i don't know does any of that does any of that argument on behalf of it resonate with you chris oh i love it no i think your reading is absolutely perfect in fact i hadn't thought about the um it's delightful that kitty pride of all possible characters mm, yeah breaks frame right yep. because in that image she's um she's shifting through solid matter at the bottom of the page mm-hmm. and then her right arm is reaching through the gutter so there's there's a diegetic breaking frame and then there's a discursive breaking frame i hadn't even thought about that until you pointed it out i think that's delightful and that's the other thing that's funny about two-page spreads usually in a two-page spread or a splash page you know if it's a single page whichever there's some dramatic action going on so there's sort of a counter intuitive nature to this because they're just talking right yeah no one's doing anything physically exciting you know hanging upside down holding something floating and so there's a 
there's a counterpoint to the style versus, you know, it's just a conversation, which, well, actually, okay, now that I realize it, it's upside down thematically. Um, and of course, Nightcrawler is upside down and page one was upside down. You expect upside downness in, in, in spreads to be dramatically, um, you know, violence, action, things like that. And there's a way that this is um, quite calm, but visually so wonderfully mixed up. It really is, I think, a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it sort of communicates that their day-to-day reality is upside down in some ways. Right, I'm going right, right, right. to be kind of generous. But yeah, I love the kitty thing, too, because we're kind of, the way she's positioned on this page, it's like we're kind of oriented with her perspective, like sort of zooming into yes. the scene, which relates yes. to her status of a point of view character, which we keep coming back to. And we particularly seem to come back to when we're doing mini relaunches within this series. We often go back to Kitty's perspective. And we're not really doing that here, but still there's a suggestion of that. Oh, totally, yeah. And I want to give LaRocca credit because he's placed Kitty in a physical position. It would be very easy to object, objectify her body extremely. And this would be a classic 90s visual moment of like the ass shot and then you also have a right breast. It'd be mm. very easy to um, accentuate both of those. But his rendering style is actually pretty calm. She just simply looks like a normal human being who happens to be floating through a solid wall. Yes, certainly not as excessive as other artists that we've seen on this book, Joanne Kitty and the various other female characters. Mav, did you have thoughts on LaRocca's splashes before we talk about a few other things? Sure. I hinted at this last episode, um, I think, when, when Adam was on. I like LaRocca, and I'm going to qualify that in that I think he got a very raw deal as to when he sort of came of note in the comics era right like mm-hmm. he's I, I believe he's actually working in the late 80s but he's mostly he's a he's a late 90s guy right so he like misses the image explosion and then he sort of is picking up the pieces you know now like in the 97 98 99 era right and he will go on to do what i think is one of the most stylistically innovative though something i don't particularly enjoy enjoy as much um looks when he goes and does extreme x-men and i have very complicated feelings on that book and its visual style the i'm not going to ink myself i'm going to do the pencil it's it's a i have very complicated feelings but what i appreciate about what he's doing is sal laroca is not afraid to take swings he'll take a big swing and i think that you're seeing that in this issue so i want to return to what chris was saying about the about the panels when i'm teaching comics as former I talk about stuff like panel placement. I'm going to be teaching this class on comics this this fall. And I'll be talking about stuff about like panel placement and what it means to bleed across the binding, not just across a panel as is happening on this two-page spread. And I think the best way of thinking about this is if you study formalist poetry, it's the comic version of enjambment. Yes. Which is essentially, enjambment is when you're studying poetry, is the process of taking a sentence and extending it beyond two lines because classically we sort of want the period to be at the end of a line and instead you just put the period in the middle and it creates a a feeling of unease but also continuation and you can do a lot with that and I'm not sure if anything's being done with that or if he's just experimenting and that sounds like a cut but actually it's not. Both are okay. I'm all right with an artist experimenting to see where an artist I mean, this generally, you know, a penciler in a comic book or a singer or a poet or whatever. I think that the nature of art is take some time to experiment and see where the form can take you. What can I do that is interesting? And I think he is absolutely doing something interesting with the excess of the 90s taken to his own kind of style. He's clearly being inspired by lots of comic book artists, but also by video games here. There's there's yeah. there's a video game that's about it. There's a manga-ish quality about this. And there's a chaos that is oddly unique to LaRocca and doesn't carry through to other people. And I think that that really works in this page, this page, and also the actual first page of the book where the upside downness is just weird and I don't know what to make of it. And I think that what we're supposed to make of it is, I want to try something new. Mm -hmm. You haven't seen this before, have you? And it's weird. There's just so much tension on that upside down car on that first page because I don't know what I'm looking at 
at and I don't know what I'm looking at in the sky, which is actually the ground, because it's just it's unsettling. And I think that sometimes unsettling can be artistic. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's sort of a subjective thing, right? I mean, is the disorientation of that first page disorienting in a way that is productive and makes us intrigued? Or is it disorienting in a way that just confuses us? I think different people are going to have different <laughs> mileage on mm-hmm. that choice. Yeah. So, I mean, so in the scene where Kitty is coming down to talk to them, mm-hmm. it it's weird because it looks like she's coming up through the floor, but yeah. it also looks like she's falling down. And I'm mm-hmm. not sure where she's coming from, it, which throws off my spatial awareness. And part of, you know, we could very easily say, oh, this is bad art, but I don't think it is. I think he's trying to do something unique. And it's just like he's trying to give us chaos in the scene for reasons that like make sense artistically. I don't know if it makes sense narratively, but that's not his fault. That's right. It's nice. You're making me the way you describe Kitty. Um, if you page two, after we have the upside down opening credit page, it opens page two opens with a four panel sequence that then um, resolves with what finally looks like a damn car. And it's right. like, <laughs> oh, that's what I've been looking at. Um, and I look at the, that four panel row, more or less, is diagonal and it's got other weirdnesses to it. And every time I look at it, I'm looking at it right now, I have not the slightest idea what I'm looking at. Even yeah. now, when I try to break it yeah. down, it's just visual chaos. And then again, that's, as you said, Mav, not a cut. It's kind of interesting that no matter how long I look at it, it still doesn't make sense. And then you have the, the re- resolution image of, oh, it's a damn car. Um, so he seems to be kind of happy experimenting for the sake of experimenting whereas narratively it's like well who cares it's right not, it's, it's, it's just a damn car and it's like who cares they're just doing this i don't even know what they're doing and no they're, they're building the machine right so they're not doing anything of dramatic import and yet the rendering style the, the layout everything is um pleasantly chaotic against what's actually completely non-chaotic narrative dynamic yeah dynamism first narrative second yeah and i would say that that's my critique of it right because even narratively the idea that brian could build a transformer that goes quite beyond his established skills as a (laughs) i don't know i mean he built like a pretty he modified i believe a pretty like regular shaped kind of spaceship supersonic plane thing which is still a lot but making okay. a car that's a transformer are we moving are we step. moving on slightly because i'm okay <laughs> i'm okay with that and you know why i'm okay with that because brian at the end of the day brian is a super scientist in the marvel universe this is a world where peter parker yeah. can build web shooters out of spare parts from from uh, you know his eighth grade science lab <laughs> this is a world this is a world where you know jokingly Tony Stark built one of these in a cave with a bucket of parts, right? Like I like I'm fine with that. I'm not fine with the fact that Kurt Wagner and Rain Sinclair are building a cerebro. Well, sure. No, they're not. Both <laughs> they, don't, they don't have I mean, I like both of those characters. Neither of them know how to, you know like kitty maybe can like do something technical she at least understands computers kurt's not a scientist in any way shape or form nor is rain what are they spot welding they're like yeah we'll just i don't know cerebro looks kind of like this right sure (laughs) and then even kitty comes up how are you going to use it none of you have telepathy (laughs) i'll figure it out later (laughs) what are you doing they're not gonna figure it out later (laughs) anyway I do want to, I almost like want to stay talking about form because I know if we start getting into the Mm. narrative inconsistencies and problems of the (laughs) Robisons that we will get very off topic, though that stuff is worth complaining about and I'm sure we'll have many chances to do so. But the thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit as well, having to do with form, was La Roca's use of inset panels. And like, maybe I'll bring you back into the conversation to start us off on that, Andrew, because I know you've looked at a lot of La Roca's work. You've done Claremont Red Threads, like on Extreme. X-Men. I know you're very familiar with his work there, and I know that you have a little bit of a soft spot for that series. I think maybe for helping bring you back into X-Men at a certain point. I think we've talked about this before, even on maybe our old show, Three Panel Contrast, so correct me if I'm wrong. But like, he uses a lot of inset panels sort of throughout his work, and I just wondered if you had thoughts about sort of his use of layers and insets and and what that might do for us. Okay, so LaRocca, I really like as an artist. Um, I, I think he has some limitations in terms of spatial geometry uh, 
And I think we're seeing that in this particular issue. I agree the chaos can be viewed metaphorically, but to me, there's a point where that starts to break down a little bit. Like it becomes yeah. kind of messy. Whereas, I mean, that scene where we're trying to establish the um, um, giant machine that Colossus is holding up, we all know how Jack Kirby would have illustrated that. Um, mm. And the machine would be large and there'd be a lot of empty space surrounding it and it would be off in the distance in a perspective point. Uh, in La Roca's, everything is mashed into these panels. And as you said, there's insects, mm. there's bleeds, there's weird scrapbooking frames that Mav has already talked about. It's it's real busy and sometimes it doesn't have that sort of cinematic style that John Byrne popularized whereby a comics artist can really create a sense of the space that the characters are occupying and how they move through it, uh, as well as the sort of rhythm uh, of the panels uh, where it's not every single panel is a blockbuster. Some of them build to more important ones. So to me, this is exactly as has already been said. This is young LaRocca. He's experimenting and it's delightful to watch that experimentation. But I find him a much more interesting artist once he starts to cultivate that poise uh, that we him do in the early to late 2000s. Andrew, can I ask you a question? Page 16 in the PDF. <laughs> to me, the strangest, the strangest page in the whole issue. He's sitting, and actually you alluded to, you alluded, uh, we alluded earlier to the dialogue, but the layout is insane. Do you see, um, What's she's on the hugging you from behind and there's the lion statue in the background and there's oh, two incidents. Yes. Okay, the lower half, you've got two insets, but to the right of those insets is a vast area of almost empty sidewalk that <laughs> takes up at least one third of the, page. Of the visual real estate. Yeah. What the hell is that? That is a very important crack in the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I've never seen anything like that in any comic book. So if you look at the vector lines of the sidewalk cracks, they actually yeah. extend from Brian's gaze. So to me, nice. this is an attempt to visually symbolize Brian's sense of disaffection or disassociation. Uh, wow, in the nice save. But that's a guess, because again, I think he's just, he's he's experimenting, right? And again, I really do appreciate that from a formalist perspective. Yes. Um, but this isn't, to me, peak LaRocca. LaRocca, the very talented comics artist. The thing, though, that I think is really illustrative of so many of the things that we've been talking about with this page is that I love your observation about Brian's gaze there and the pools of water underscore that, right? You know, metaphorical tears and all that. Yeah. And yet... <laughs> Pacing is an issue here because there's no space between panels, right? Like the inset at the top left of Megan walking mm. towards him, there's no white space differentiating that panel from this other one. So you get this sense of like chaos and disorientation because of that lack of white space. And we have that replicated with the two panels on the bottom. Although I find the one up top more disorienting because it's the same color and shapes, but layered on top of one another. So you have yeah. this sense of stillness, but I find like the excess and the chaos is interfering fearing with kind of that emotional tone on this page and it's just like i appreciate the experimentation but there's too much going on here uh, maybe anna would you be willing to to compare it to some of the things that you said about mignola's use of inset panels because mm. that's an artist who's in play right now right yeah we did a sequential scholars thread about mignola's uh use of inset panels in hellboy and he often uses it to well i mean inset panels sort of often highlight sort of a smaller it's often used in like an aspect aspect way to highlight a smaller yeah. kind of like part mm -hmm. of a scene or like right. you know one perspective layered on top of another perspective that kind of thing like in mignola it's often a disorientation a disorienting effect like it emphasizes the supernatural because we'll have a scene of hellboy doing something and then like a little inset panel of a bird like saying something and you're like what's going on with that bird that bird is supernatural and magical and we need to figure it out and so it really engages sort of the reader in the supernaturalness of that space i don't really think what's going on here is particularly similar to that because i don't know i would just question what the use of insets here is achieving you know it's it's disorienting us but to what end right yeah, and i right, don't exactly. think it's necessarily effective on a page like this although i like some of the other pages in this issue yeah yeah i get the sense that he's using incense because he just wants to he's yeah. not mm -hmm. there's totally. not a feeling of like because i totally agree with your reading of magnola and actually it's interesting with magnola the key is that um he's brilliant with gutters he's got a mm -hmm. perfectly regularized gutter so when an mm -hmm. inset occurs it stands out yeah but yeah. here it's just a wash of insets yeah and they, no one of them is particularly significant you know like the bottom one here it's like one of them has a red frame why mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> alert it's an alert yeah. 
I mean, who knows? This is one of those ones, you know, like when we're teaching comics and we really want our students to read closely and then they try to unpack a page yes. like this and they're like, yeah. every single choice is significant. And I'm like, ah, Unless I it's really not. love your dedication, but like also they're just doing stuff. I don't know that it actually does work, but I appreciate you trying to, to save it as it were, as you just exactly. said of Andrew doing. But anyway, Mav, I know you wanted to jump in a second ago and, and talk about the lead up to this scene. Yeah. Well, okay. So I agree with everything that's been said here. And I think that this is sort of indicative of the experimentation. I do think he's going for isolation. I think Andrew's right. I think Brian is staring at that crack. I think we are getting, you know, a contemplative guy who, you know, oh, what if I want to leave everything that I know, which is, I guess, superheroing? Because I've never really been happy at it. I didn't really want to do it in the first place, kind of fell into it. And then it's been a while. So, like, I I, I appreciate that Rob is trying to tell the story. I appreciate that Salvador LaRocca is trying to make it interesting. but here's where i know that it's just experimentation for the sake of mere experimentation if we go back to the page the two pages two page spread right before this which i love we have a conversation between megan and brian where megan is talking to him brian's lost in thought and ignoring her which is actually kind of great because it just <clears> sort of shows that brian is he's not even trying to be rude because there are times where brian is being rude he is just yeah. so distraught that he doesn't hear her here and you know i've been on both sides of that conversation i've done that to people and i've been the person who it's been done to it's a thing that happens in a close relationship where you're where you're you're really just you're you're in another world and so i'm okay with that story and i'm okay with how megan reacts to it i even think you know the little the little dark humor that she says at the end oh but did i tell you by the way that i'm onslaught she's just trying to make sure he's not paying attention to her and the fact that he never addresses it is cute and then the fact that you know in the next line once he starts talking about what's really wrong she doesn't push the joke this is the most normal and loving i've seen their relationship in a long time what doesn't work and what i want to work is that because he's doing this regularized you know oh nine panel spread of them just having coffee together you have this woman who enters from the right of the frame and has her own little story going on with the with the waiter and she's in the foreground and it's placed in such a way that if I'm supposed to be teaching this to a bunch of students where I and where I say what what Anna just said pay attention to everything everything is important nothing is on accident this woman clearly has some important part of this story coming up <laughs> she does not we are never going to see her again ever 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 <laughs> like, like, <laughs> right. wait wait i'm gonna push can i push it back against that because to me it was uh, um i mean okay on one hand yes obviously you're right but accepting the um the setup with these um this you know the, the, the very clearly gridded and it's always the same viewpoint she enters she interacts and then you have her in exactly the same pose for four almost exactly the same pose for four grids and then to me the punchline is when she looks up from her book and is clearly checking him out as yeah. he walks <laughs> off screen so it's a it's an extended visual joke which it frankly falls a little flat but at the same time i kind of i like that moment when she just looks at him it's a lot it's a huge setup for a very tiny payoff but I kind of enjoyed it. She's just a, yeah, she, but she's just an extra. And yeah. it's what you do. I think it was on the other show where I mentioned that I, I, I've i been an extra in a, in, a, in movies a couple of times. <laughs> and I'm in the movie Zack and Mary Make a Porno. It, I'm in that movie. I am a, <laughs> like, it's not a porn movie. It's a, it's a Kevin Smith movie. I've seen it. Oh. I'm, okay. So the, the day you, the, on, in that movie, when they first decide, hey, we're going to go make a porno and they go to the strip club to kind of like, audition people trying to find somebody to be in their in their porno with them i'm in the strip club and they find uh, the actress's name is katie morgan i don't remember her character's name but they find her in this club and get her to agree to be in it and if you watch that film wh- and i got direction from kevin smith to do this if you watch this that film when they're talking to her i walk across the stage not across the stage because i'm not on stage and that's misleading in, in a um in a strip club i walk across <laughs> the scene i stop i check out katie morgan ass and then i walk on that's my job in the movie yeah i do not i do not matter the story i'm barely in focus i mean i'm like i'm behind her but like the reason is because the in order to sell the idea that they are in a strip club where guys are you know 
obviously checking out the girls who work there. My job is to create that illusion by just being, but I'm in the background because that's how you compose that scene. Like you want to focus on Seth Rogen, Elizabeth Banks, and Katie Morgan because they're the actors in the scene. And I am, in fact, they call extras in the business. They call them background because I am no more important than a plotted plant. But like I need to be there in order to sell the idea that this is not, this is not an empty room. This is a strip club where guys are like that. That's the entire point of me being in that scene. Yeah, um, yeah. That's and, that, and, and that's what this woman does. This woman makes this scene seem like it's in a real restaurant. So they're not just talking in space. It's just weird because she's the foreground and they're the background as opposed to the other way around. And when you do that, usually, so there's a scene in Watchmen where Gibbons does this, where Laurie and Dan have dinner together. And it's the scene with the famous four-legged chicken. But like, there's an intentionality there where they're in the background and you're seeing the rest of the world because it allows you to see the subtle ways in which the Watchmen world is different than our 1985. But that's not the case here. The case here is just, LaRocca is just experimenting. And I, again, I like that he's trying to do something because the alternative would be he would just be making a dynamic fight out of trying to put together a machine like he was doing on page two through yeah. two through right. five. And I, Bev, I agree with everything you said. I think that's a brilliant analysis. I'm just going to add that the same way Lorica starts with the upside down image and then turns Kurt upside down. And so there's, in this case, having the extra in the foreground is a version of upside down. Mm -hmm. And using a really rectangular gridded system, panel system for two pages is upside down when the norm is always do something irregular. So suddenly to follow, these are the only two pages, the only two pages in the comic book that follow the same layout. So the, the norm is not, is never follow the same layout, never use the same layout twice. Yeah. In two ways, these pages are upside down thematically and visually rather. And that's fun, but I agree. <laughs> It's not that much payoff. He's just having fun. It's sort of like the writing, the script and the artwork weren't coordinated. He yeah. received the script. And this is, of course, the, the standard Marvel system. You know, artist is handed a script, I think literally handed back in the 90s. And the artist goes off and draws something, right? There's no like real integration, you know, so there are obviously ways you could integrate, but it's, it just seems like he's just like, okay, these are the words I've been given. Let me go have some fun. And his mm -hmm. theme of like upside downness is not in the script. It's just in the artwork. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That's a good way of putting it about kind of some of the disjoint of some of these pages despite the inventiveness of them um, i'm gonna go to yes. final thoughts just because we're running a bit long um i know that yes. chris wants to talk a little bit about color but you're welcome to do that for your final thought we can talk about it a little <laughs> bit andrew was there anything that you wanted to bring up or circle back to before we close our i don't want to say unexpectedly fascinating <laughs> discussion because i knew with chris here it would be a fascinating <laughs> discussion but yeah anything you want to circle back to andrew uh yeah just quick shout out to the angus mcwerder callback that was cool and i really wanted to point out that um pete wisdom has a question at one point in the text when he's all appalled by everybody and hating everything he specifically says since when did you chaps decide to play mutant messiah and lead all the wayward mutants to the promised land and the answer to that is excalibur the sword is drawn it's like explicitly <laughs> stated at the end of that book <laughs> So that's yeah. which he knows. He should know this. He should know this. <laughs> I picked up a beat up copy of The Sword is Drawn in a used bookstore in Brockville, Ontario yesterday just because it was five bucks. And I was like, you can't have too many. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> someone had really enjoyed it, which charmed my heart. Um, Mav, anything you want to bring up or circle back to? So the things that I really thought were interesting, we've mostly talked about on this one. Then there's just like little bits and pieces in this issue which don't add up that none of them make me hate it. it like i talked about the fact that kurt is building a cerebro that he does that he somehow knows how to build but doesn't understand how it's gonna work like that's weird and it's a big it's a bit of bad writing <laughs> but also like i don't love the the flashbacks because as i pointed out when, when, when chris asked who are the flashbacks for diegetically kitty is having this conversation about how she joined the x-men with her ex-boyfriend who was there at the time and telling her current boyfriend whom I'm sure she's had this conversation with so things like that feel weird but the thing that feels weirdest to me in retrospect for the entire issue 
you is uh the crimson dawn that sounds exciting <laughs> oh. that sounds like something great wow yeah. crimson dawn oh yeah. i'm scared i'm interesting clearly something interesting is going to be happening with the crimson dawn something that is being teased in this issue damn it's a cool name um <laughs> notice that i said that because i will not be repeating that phrase ever again nothing comes of this it is so stupid it's dumb we're gonna be with the crimson dawn for several for issues a long time yeah. for way too long yeah. but like, but there's a glimmer of hope here that wow crimson dawn enough that like spiral wants to be on their side wow <laughs> all right <laughs> that's where i'm at thank you for that yeah we will we will be returning to the ongoing adventures of the crimson dawn getting real into a lot of origin context stuff for <laughs> anyway we'll get to it we'll get to it put a pin in that for now anyway coming back to you chris if you would like to talk about color a little bit in closing as i know you want to talk about it and we didn't get to it you're more than welcome to or anything else you want to circle back to the floor is yours i, I i'm gonna i want to actually go to my favorite page which we haven't touched Please. yet which is page 19 and I think it's um, one of the more interesting layouts. We've talked about a lot of LaRocca's pleasantly strange choices, not particularly coherent. He just seems to be playing his own game that's a little separate from the storyline, from the script. He's just doing his own thing. My favorite moment, here, let me back this up first. Usually in the norm in comics is you've got a panel and then there's a white space and then you have a panel. The image of um, Captain Britain kneeling to put on the ring as he proposes is a really radical use of page space because he's kneeling on her face in the mm -hmm. next image <laughs> yeah. and um which is which is nice because it's a dramatic it's actually a dramatic moment she's accepting the ring it's the proposal this to me is actually the climax of the whole issue this is the most dramatic thing that happens um aside from looking at his butt from that woman who's just sitting in the chair and the, the radicalness of the layout this is we've seen some strange choices but this is the strangest there is this is a completely overlapped set of two images not even the slight semblance of the idea of like panel frame panel frame this is just a complete overlap and then she has that shocked expression because of course she's responding to the next dramatic thing but by superimposing it that way it's as though she's responding to the proposal not to whatever the hell is going to happen next with the crimson whatever which i think is really a well literally artful choice um so i just wanted to do a final thank you to laroca for that to that layout i think it's the best one in the issue wow wow i love that it's certainly a memorable one i will leave my thoughts on it there and um <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to spotlight in closing just as we like to do sometimes a little something from the sword strokes letters page. Not going to spotlight a letter this time, but just in the interests of my ongoing campaign about Amanda Sefton deserving better. Uh, the teaser for next month just says for Amanda's role in it, Amanda takes a powder for good. And I love that both they spoil the fact that she's leaving the team and that it won't be explained. So like, good job there. Just telling us what's going to happen in the next issue that's not so much a teaser as a spoiler and also just the the carelessness of it all i mean amanda truly deserves better than to just be made fun of for leaving the team in the letter page uh spoiling <laughs> the twist but anyway we'll get back to my complaints about amanda over the course of the next few issues so we'll leave it there for now batwing snake skin is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in potions and petty evil? And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin? I'm worn thin and threadbare. I've tried to guide men or meddled in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has come. We will wrap things up there other than to say, Chris, our deepest thanks for joining us. It was so great going oh, going back to comic so school a little fun. bit you. with you in this episode. So fun. Made such a great convo of this one. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of the stuff you get up to. And if you would like people to find you online, whereabouts they can find you. We wrecked some of your stuff at the beginning, but um, yeah, remind them again. If you want people to find you, where can they find you and what past, present, future work should they be looking out for? Uh, I 
blog every week at my personal website, um, Patron Saint of Superheroes WordPress. Um, and my last book is the comics, um, the comics form. And I'm going to add one detail. I just today announced that I my next book I'm under contract. Uh, my uh, co-author Nathaniel Goldberg and I have turned in our next manuscript, and it's called Revising Reality. Oh. It'll be out from Bloomsbury next year, and it's not about comics, though it kind of is, because we're taking the <laughs> idea of reboots and retcons and sequels, and we apply it to the real world, meaning history and politics and super, Supreme Court cases. Oh, wow. That yeah. sounds fascinating. So that'll be fun. Thank you so much for that. We'll put links to all the stuff that we're able to put links to, and just, uh, yeah, thanks so, so, so much again, Chris. Thank you. Next, the Crimson Dawn is still here and will be for a while, but also Kitty and Rain have a girl's day, and I'd rather talk about that, so we definitely will be doing that in Excalibur number 108, The Old Ways. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, I'm down to like two spots left, but still um let us know there's a possibility you can reach out to us via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another very excessive convo thank you chris for <laughs> untangling the excess with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought Form music for a truly epic theme song play us out that was such a great convo